I'll be reading this morning from Matthew 10, verses 1 through 15. Jesus called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not get gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for someone, some worthy person, and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it's not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. Probably every one of us has felt that feeling of being in over our heads, of having bit off more than we can chew, just being... You ever felt terribly unqualified for something that is suddenly your responsibility? Uh, I've, I've told this story before, but uh, when we first moved here, I want to say we had been in town for three days. So I'd been, I had the immense um, pastoral experience of three entire days as a pastor. And I got a phone call. It was the mayor, Dwight Coleman. And Dwight uh, called, introduced himself, and he was telling me about his parents. And many of you remember um, Glenn and Roberta, right? And they had they'd been members of this church, and I didn't know them. And um, he told me that basically, sadly, his dad, Glenn, was dying. They'd moved him into the manor, and he, I'd never met Roberta, and he was trying to prepare me for Roberta. And he was telling, she's completely blind. Uh, but he also told me that she's also completely convinced she can live by herself and they should never have left their house that the rushers are about to move out to the country. Um, and he was telling me, man, my mom's very frank and very forward and she doesn't want to be in the manor and they're not adjusting very well, but dad's dying and she's blind. And, but I really feel like they could use a pastor you know, to go and visit. And I remember, I've been a pastor for three days. I remember thinking, I think you're right. They could use a visit from a pastor. And if I find one, I will send one your way. Because I have no idea what I am doing. Um, And if I felt that way, and I did, out of my league, unqualified for something that was suddenly my job, but I didn't know how to do it. If I felt that way, even though we're not told how the 12 
apostles, 12 disciples felt in that passage that Chad read for us this morning, I am pretty sure they felt even more inadequate and out of their league and in over their heads than I did because Jesus sends them out on their first mission in this passage. Jesus pulls something of a dirty trick. It's not too dirty because it's Jesus. So I know this isn't sinful. But he pulls a fast one on his disciples right here at the beginning of Matthew chapter 10. This is the beginning of what's usually called the, 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 the missionary discourse of Jesus. It's a long sermon about uh, being sent out to minister on behalf of Jesus. And, and here was the setup. I've got to go back. It's been two weeks for us since I was gone last week. But Jesus has just been, he sort of lifted up his eyes and looked at all these crowds and mobs of people who are coming toward him really for the wrong reason. They just want to be benefited in ways they've always wanted to be benefited. They want healed, they want fed, they want to see a miracle done. And here's what Jesus said. This is the last thing we read. I'm struggling with the clicker here, so heads up back there. Um, So when he saw the crowds, this is chapter 9, verse 36, Jesus had compassion on them because they were bewildered and helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And then Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. There's the problem. You see the problem, boys, Jesus says. There's all these people out there who need me. And there's not enough workers to meet them all. So here was step one of the solution to that problem. Harvest is plentiful, workers are few. So Jesus said in 938, Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And In my mind's eye, I picture this going down this way. Jesus said, that's what we need to do, boys. We need to pray for harvest workers. And I've asked, I asked you two weeks ago to be praying for harvest workers. And in my mind's eye, I see Jesus saying, okay, everybody bow your heads and repeat after me. I really want you to pray this. Dear Lord, dear Lord, uh, would you send out, would you send out workers, workers into your harvest, into your harvest. Amen. And Jesus said, then the very next thing we read is today's passage where Jesus sort of goes, Good news, boys. God has answered your prayer. You prayed for harvest workers to go out into the harvest field, and hallelujah, God has come through and answered your prayers. The bad news is, it's you. I'm sending you out to be the harvest workers that you've been praying for. In the first 15 verses of Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sends his 12 closest disciples uh, out on their first mission. It's a very specific, special mission for a very special time in history. Everything in this passage does not apply to us, but there are certainly things that we can learn. It's, it's a bigger chunk than we've been taking in the book of Matthew, so I'll have to kind of go quickly, but let's, uh, let's see what we can learn from this passage this morning. I don't know. What's, is that you clicking that or is that me? Okay. I'm going to put this thing away then and give you the high sign when it's time. Okay. In, uh, in the first verse and a half, the disciples, the 12 disciples get a name change. We start in verse 1. Jesus called his 12 disciples and he does something really special He gave them authority over unclean spirits or demons 
so they could cast them out. And he gave them authority over disease and sickness so they can heal those things. What we've learned in the book of Matthew so far is that Jesus did miracles out of his authority. He is in authority over all of creation. The weather, the laws of physics, disease, the spiritual realm. Jesus can make stuff do what he wants it to do because he's in authority over all of creation. In this passage, Jesus sort of deputizes his 12 disciples and puts them in this special position in his authority like over all of creation. Like they're not equal, they're not fully equal in essence with Jesus obviously, but he says, I'm going to give you my authority so that you can do what I've been doing for the reason I've been doing it. Because I'm going to give you authority over all of creation. And then he gives them a name change. And don't miss it. Now these are the names of the 12 apostles. The name change is significant. Jesus has lots of disciples, actually. That's why when I refer to this group of 12, I like to call them the 12 and not the disciples. Because there are, Jesus has lots of disciples in the Gospels. Lots of men and women who followed him for most of his ministry and were faithful followers, as faithful as these 12 guys were. A disciple is someone who has identified with Jesus' ministry and message, They've submitted to him, and they're trying to become more like him. That's a disciple. These guys, though, get a special designation that the others don't get. They're called apostles. Apostle, the word just means sent one, one who is sent. It can mean messenger, envoy, delegate. And and these guys, there's, there's very few apostles, There's lots and lots of disciples, and still today, disciples are being made. Apostles, not so much. Apostles, there were these 12 guys, and then Judas Iscariot gets subtracted from that number after he betrays Jesus and takes his own life. Then a guy named Matthias in the book of Acts gets added to the number of apostles. And then Jesus handpicks a guy named Saul of Tarsus, the apostle Paul, to become an apostle. And that's, that's basically it. Okay? There's very few people who have ever been an apostle. It's a very special position. By the way, you can see other people. This word, though, apostle, still means messenger. So there's a few times in the New Testament where this word gets used of other people, but they're not, they don't have this position. The Apostle Paul laid out for us, and I mentioned it during singing time, what was so special about this group. Paul called, he uh, likened the building of the church of Jesus Christ to building a building. And that day you started with a cornerstone. You got one foundation stone, you know, the right size and shape. And he said Christ is our cornerstone and everything gets built off of that one stone. Christ was the cornerstone, and then Paul said the apostles were the rest of the foundation. And everything good that the church has become over the last 2,000 years has been built on the foundation of those apostles. 
It's an eternally significant position very few people have. The Apostle John, when he writes the book of Revelation, he tells us he saw a picture of the eternal city, uh, the New Jerusalem. There's a huge wall around that city and the foundation stones of that wall had the names of the apostles on them. Very few apostles. They're placed into a very special position. They're deputized. Jesus, it's like he makes them full partners in his firm. (laughs) Though not equal to him, obviously. So they get placed into an exceptional position, but they're very regular people. Sorry, I keep forgetting this doesn't work. In verses 2 through 4, Matthew just tells us the names of who these apostles were. Um, really, we know, we know a lot or quite a bit about three of them. We know a little bit about three or four, depending upon how much it takes to know a little bit. And then the rest of them, we know basically nothing. <laughs> um, we, we, we just know very little. Most of these guys get a mention here, uh, like a sentence in the gospel, other than being listed uh, in the list of apostles. When Mark tells us the story, Mark tells us Jesus sent these guys out in pairs, and you can see that in Matthew. Matthew lists these guys in, in pairs. I'll go quickly through these, tell you a bit about who these guys were. First... Uh, in verse 2, first, Simon called Peter and his Andrew brother. Simon or Peter, these are two fishermen brothers. Every time you see the disciples listed, Peter is always first. And he's not just first in like order listed. He's first, he's primary, he's the first among equals. He's the unquestioned, hand-picked leader of this group. We read more about Peter in the Gospels than any of the rest of these guys. We'll see him a lot more as we walk through the book of Matthew. He's paired up with his brother, Andrew. Um, Again, another fisherman. And Andrew is one of those guys we know a little bit about. One sort of thing that I think is interesting, his name, Andrew. You know what that name means? Do we have any Andrews? I don't think so. It means manliness. Isn't that a great name? My name is manliness. This is why when I meet Greek people, they always say, is your name Andrew? You look like an Andrew. I'm well... Can understand why you'd make that mistake, but my name's Matt. No, but aside from being uh, named Manliness, which is pretty cool, uh, Andrew, when, the thing I love about Andrew, he doesn't say much in the Gospels. When we see Andrew in the Gospels, he's bringing somebody to meet Jesus. Doesn't say much, brings people to meet Jesus. We need more Andrews. Um, he was a, a disciple of John the Baptist. He brought his brother Simon Peter to meet Jesus in the Gospel of John. Uh, He and another guy brought some Greeks to meet Jesus one time. One time there was a bunch of hungry people and he brought a young boy who had some bread and some fish to Jesus to be used. Doesn't say much, brings people to meet Jesus. That's what I like about Andrew. Uh, Next pair, James, son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. James and John, Jesus nicknamed these guys the, the sons of thunder. Again, two fishermen brothers. Those four make up the inner circle of Jesus' inner circle, uh, for sure, especially Peter, James, and John. Um, This 
John is the author of the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the book of Revelation. Um, some scholars would say if Jesus had a best friend, it's John. Uh, his brother, uh, James, this is not Jesus' half-brother James. Uh, it's, and the, uh, the author of the book of James, not this guy. Everyone, his claim to fame it's kind of an unfortunate one for him, or fortunate now. He, is, he will be the first of the apostles to get martyred, killed for his faith. And that's those two. Who's next? Philip and Bartholomew are next. Don't too, know too much um, about those two. Uh, Bartholomew is also known by his Hebrew name in some lists, Nathaniel. That's Nathaniel. James, uh, uh, or so sorry, Thomas and Matthew are next. This is doubting Thomas. Didn't believe that Jesus had ra- risen from the dead. That's Thomas. He's paired with Matthew, the tax collector. Next, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Thaddeus is, pro- is also known by the name Jude. His real name is probably Judas. Uh, that be, being named Judas is going to be a brick to lay on somebody after a while because of you don't want to be confused with the other Judas. So he goes by Thaddeus as a nickname. James, son of Alphaeus, how about this for a name? Because he's not either of the other two Jameses that are more important in the Gospels, he goes by the name James the Less. How'd you like to have that name? I'm Matt, but I'm Matt the Less. I'm just the Less. We have, we have several guys named Brad in our church. And I, I think uh, instead of calling Brad Dylan, Brad Dylan, let's call him Brad the Less from here on, because he's not here today. So you know, like Brad the Butcher, Brad my neighbor, and Brad the Less. So when you see Brad Dylan, you tell him we changed his name today. Um, and then the last pair, Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot. Uh, Simon the Zealot, probably what that means, calling him the Zealot, he... He definitely was somebody waiting for God to restore the kingdom to Israel. But the zealots wanted to use violence, um, military revolt against Rome to accomplish that. Uh, the gospel can change anybody. Because he's not, that's not going to be the message of his life after he meets Jesus. He's paired with Judas Iscariot. Seems like he got the short end of the stick to us. But Judas Iscariot was very trusted. John tells us he was so trusted by the rest of the disciples, he was nominated the treasurer. He took care of the money. And that's the guys uh, that went out. And because we know so little about these guys, what we know lets us know they're just unremarkable guys but they do incredible things. They change the world. They lay the foundation set on Christ the cornerstone and they literally change the course of world history, allowing their Lord Jesus to work through them. Most of them are, are martyred, they're exiled. People will be shocked later in the New Testament at how they preach and teach. They're just uneducated Galileans. Who changed the world? You ever hear of the book "Same Kind of Different as Me"? I think it's a movie too. Same kind of different as me. Um, these guys changing the world reminds me of the, the guy named Denver Moore. 
He was a convict. He got out of prison. He was homeless. He was violent. He was just a real jerk by his own admission. He got, he got saved. He met a Christian art dealer. And this homeless guy and this art dealer began a ministry. And this Denver Moore became something of a philanthropist and an evangelist. And in his book, Same Kind of Different as Me, uh, he writes who he was. And it reminds me of the disciples. I love this line. Go back, go back one, Seth. It actually worked once. There we go. Here's the, he said, here's who I am. I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody who can save anybody. That's the apostles. A bunch of nobodies trying to tell everybody about somebody who can save anybody. And what they are charged to do, Jesus lays out beginning in verse Five. The rest of, the, of this passage is gee, their first set of marching instructions, marching orders, for a very specific mission. The mission is laid out in verses 5 through 8. It's a, it's a special mission using special methods to reach a very specific audience. It can be... Verses 5 and 6 can be surprising to us and a little offensive unless you're here this morning and you are full Israelite. Do we have any full-blood Jews in the audience this morning? No? Well, then Jesus didn't send his disciples out for someone like you or me. Jesus said, don't go to any Gentile regions. Don't go any place where there's Samaritans, which are half Israelite, half Gentile. Instead, here's your mission. You're only going to Israel. And here's your message. Preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. We've, we've, we've heard that message already in Matthew. The first guy that preached it was a guy named John the Baptist. Second guy that said that message was Jesus himself. And now Jesus said, here's your job. Go throughout Israel and tell Israel the king's here. Jesus has shown himself to be the Messiah. Israel hadn't had a king for hundreds and hundreds of years. God had promised there's a king coming. Jesus shows up, does what the Messiah is supposed to do. And now he tells his disciples, all right, go tell Israel the king's here. That's that's their message on this mission. That's why it's only for Israel. He tells them, don't go into any Gentile regions, which is a little bit funny, really, Because the last thing his disciples would have done is gone into a Gentile region with a message that said, hey, my country's got a new king. Just letting you guys know. It's it's not for anyone else. Now here's a question though. Let's say two fishermen, or whatever the rest of these guys did, blow into town someplace way down by Mount Tabor or something like this, and they come in and start saying, hey, I want everybody to know that the Messiah is here and we're, you know, his apostles, his sent ones, like we're the inner circle. Um, so what do, you, what do you guys think? Do you want to make Jesus the king? Why would anybody believe that they were with Jesus? It, really, the, the answer is they wouldn't. And that's why Jesus gives them his authority on this mission. Verse 80 says, you go and you heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. 
Whose ministry does that sound like? Jesus's. Here's what Jesus tells them. You take the message I've been preaching, the kingdom of heaven's at hand. You take the methods I've been using to prove to people that the kingdom is here, and you go do that throughout Israel. That's your job. You take my authority to go do it. He gives them some more special instructions for how to go about this. Let me ask you this. If you had the kind of powers that Jesus gave the apostles, what might you use them for? Jesus is going to give them very special instructions that lets them know, I'm giving you authority over all creation, but you can't use that for your own benefit. Your ministry is going to look like mine. Did Jesus use his powers to to make himself fine meals and make sure he stayed in the finest accommodations? No, he trusted the Father to provide for him, even though he could have made stones become bread and the like, right? So in verses um, 9 and 10 here, Jesus tells his disciples to uh, basically travel light. Walk by faith, defend on the Father. Don't take, don't take extra clothes. Don't take extra cash. Travel light. Um, in verses 11 through 14, he says, When you go into a town, look for a worthy person. A worthy person is someone who's ready to receive a message and and another person. That's going to be important later. Because you know why Jesus is worthy to receive praise? Because he's ready. It's fitting that he receives our praise. You're looking for somebody who will welcome you when you get into a town or a village. And then Jesus says, if you find that person who is willing to let their house be the home base of your ministry while you're there, don't look for anybody else. Here's what Jesus is saying. Don't continually look for the nicer house, the richer folks, some people with more influence or can make life easier for you. This isn't about you. So that's that's how they're supposed to stay or where they're supposed to stay. And then the last couple of verses, Jesus tells them, anticipating the rejection that's coming, Jesus tells them, You do not have to continually try and minister to someone who's hostile toward your message. He says if they are, if they're mean to you, if they, if they, nobody in town will receive you, he says you can shake the dust off your feet. That's quite a statement from Jesus when he's talking about Jews doing this toward other Jews. Shaking the dust off your clothing and out of your sandals was a symbol, as a Jew traveled, if he had to go through a Gentile area, when he got back in Israel, he would shake the dirty, nasty Gentile dust out of his clothing, now that he's back in pure, clean Israel. Jesus says, if people won't reject your message that I'm the king, even though they're fellow Jews, you're going to demonstrate a sign that there's now a separation between you and them. That's a, that's a really serious picture. You can either accept Jesus or there's a separation between those who do and those who don't. By the way, notice what Jesus does not say. He does not say, if you 
think people might be hostile, you don't have to tell them your message. No, he says, you have to tell them. And then if they're hostile, you do not have to continue to bang your head against that wall. But you're responsible to tell them. And then finally, again, anticipating rejection. Because Jesus knows Israel's not going to accept him as its king during his first advent. He wants to let his disciples know, guys, when you get rejected, don't feel bad for yourselves. Feel bad for the people who are rejecting this message. Because that rejection will be way worse for those who reject you than it will be for you being rejected. Everybody knows what it's like to feel rejected. It doesn't feel good. Jesus says, man, when you tell this message to your fellow Jewish brethren, they reject it, feel bad for them. He says it this way, I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for the region of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than it will be for that town. He's going to talk about this again in in the next chapter, so I won't go too much into it, but Sodom and Gomorrah were the poster children for wickedness in the Old Testament. Uh, Biblically speaking, their worst sin was being inhospitable. They were inhospitable to angels. They were also incredibly immoral. Um, But Jesus says loud and clear, rejecting me Rejecting Jesus is the worst sin anyone can have on their record when they stand before God. You believe that's true? When someone ends their life on this planet and their soul separates from their body, if you're going to make a list of the worst sins anybody can have on their record, here's number one by a mile. If my sin is I rejected Jesus Christ, that's, that's the top. It's the top by so far, it's almost like nothing else matters, though the other stuff will matter too. More on that in a few weeks. Okay, that's the, that's the story. Another thing we see there is uh, apparently there, there are different levels of punishment for those who are separate from God for all of eternity. Again, we'll, we'll pick up that theme in a few weeks, so I'll just barely touch on it. All right, long passage. We didn't go through that with the fine-tooth comb that a lot of times we do. But now I want to share with you a couple ways this passage does not apply to us, and then some things that I think that does apply to us. How this passage does not apply to us is first, the disciples got to do a, 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 a ministry of miracles as they went around. I mean, this would have been pretty cool. You know, they, they blow into town someplace, say, hey, I want to tell you about the guy who sent me. His name's Jesus. He's the Messiah. Like, oh yeah, why should we believe you? And they're like, poof, right? Like, so all of a sudden, his leper is completely healed. That's why, right there. Um... They get a ministry of miracles because their ministry is supposed to look like Jesus' ministry. A very special group of men at a very special time in history. But now that they've done their job, maybe the most important job 
these guys did for us is they commissioned the writing of the New Testament scriptures and they put their stamp of approval on it. Once they did their ministry and we can have this, when the disciples did all their ministry, there wasn't a New Testament. Some of them, they were writing, but it certainly wasn't collected. Now that we have this, this is what validates our message. The scriptures. We don't have a, a ministry of miracles to do now. Don't get me wrong. I believe in miracles. I believe God still does things that cannot be explained scientifically. That's a miracle. That happens. What I'm saying is God hasn't appointed people to go and decide when those miracles happen. That was for the, the apostles. Listen, they had that authority to, to use as they saw fit. If, if a ministry like the apostles had is still for us today, I want to see some people getting raised from the dead. Because that's what these guys could do. And they did. Heal every kind of disease completely, no matter how much faith the person being healed had or didn't have. There's a very select and special group of people. That's why I will tell you, all right, a quick lesson on picking a church, young people. You get up, you move away, or you grow up, you move away, you pick out a new church. If you're looking at a new church and it claims to be led by apostles or their denomination or group claims to be led by apostles, like, I'm out. Like, no thank you. Hey, nowhere in the New Testament were we commanded to go make or name new, uh, new apostles. Hey, um, we're supposed to make disciples. By the way, we did get one we did get one miraculous power by which people can tell that we're from Jesus. You know what that is? Would you like to know what your miraculous power is? That if people are going to know that you're from Jesus by looking at you, what power you have that will let them know you're a disciple of Jesus, some of you know already. In the book of John, Jesus said, everyone will know by this that you are my disciples. If you, if you raise the dead and heal every kind of disease. Is that what he said? No, if you what? If you love one another. If you are so good at putting other people in front of yourself. If when people come to your church, they know something is different. These people love me and they don't even know me yet. In fact, if they did know me, they might not love me so much, but they love me. That's our superpower. That's how people should know we're from Jesus. Second thing, something that doesn't apply to us, our commission's different than these guys got in this day for this mission. Our, we preach a different message to a different audience. These guys went through Israel saying, the king's here. Israel, would you like for the kingdom to start now under Jesus? At the end of this book of Matthew, he will give these same guys a different commission. We call it the Great Commission. It's go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That is, that's our audience now, the whole world. 
And our message, no longer is our message, the kingdom is here. The kingdom is at hand. You ever see somebody walking around in a sandwich board or with a sign that says the kingdom is at hand? Like that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, Here's our message. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The whole world needs to hear that message. Apart from something that God does in your life, you'll never stand before a holy God. But he paid the price your sins needed paid on the cross. Christ died for your sins because of your sins. He died in your place. That's our message. Different than the one these these guys got in this chapter. Sometimes I see... uh, especially church planting movement in the more emergent church, I think they use some of these uh, passages to try and build New Testament ministry on, and I just think it's not really uh, for us. One more, Seth. What does apply to us, though? Definitely, God still calls regular people to become harvest workers, And God still equips regular folks to be successful in that calling. In the the main way that we do church in America, most churches are more or less like this. People come to a building. One guy who has spent a lot of time studying this. And I do. I spend a lot of time studying these. I even practice saying these sermons so that they're not ridiculously super boring. Okay? I'm trying, y'all. Okay? I'm trying. But that model, and it's good, and I have benefited greatly from sitting under men who study this thing and faithfully explain it. It's good. But that model can, if there's one weakness, it, it can create a syndrome that I call, I could never do it like that syndrome. Right? Because then we read where Jesus tells regular people, like, to pray that God would raise up harvest workers and then be a harvest worker. Two weeks ago, I said, Jesus' solution, when he looked out and said, the problem is we got all that harvest out there and too few workers. The solution is be a harvest worker who prays for more harvest workers. But one, one really common excuse for, for not is like, well, I could never do it like Pastor Matt does it. Listen, Pastor Matt can't do it like Pastor Matt does it. I practiced this three times before I said it this morning. I don't talk like this normally. We can, we can equip ourselves to know, I can, what is the gospel? If I asked you right now, like I'm going to, are you, are you going to heaven when you die? If your answer is yes, my next question is why? How would you answer that question? If in your head you're saying, well, because I'm, I'm better than most of the Christians I know, I'm a pretty good guy, or I've never really hurt anyone, it's not a good answer. I don't want to put anybody on the spot, but I want to tell you a story right now, and he's probably going to punch me later, but I'm faster than him now. Um, one of my favorite stories, I was actually uh, doing a funeral for uh, Linda Molander, actually. 
And there was a break in that time, and I went to make a hospital visit, and I went and saw Dennis, Dennis Harms. And I walked in in my full suit and tie, um, and Dennis wasn't doing very good. He was in the hospital, and he walked in, he said, man, oh man, Matt, what are you so dressed up for? And I said, well, Denny, I heard you weren't doing very well, so I just dressed for the funeral right then. And he laughed, and laughed so hard, I thought maybe I would have his funeral. And we talked for a little bit, and I said, Dennis, listen, Dennis knows his own mortality. His ticker is, is, is a time bomb. He's had three, four really big ones, heart attacks. And like all of us, he knows someday I'm not going to have another day. And I asked him that day, Dennis, when you have a heart event and, and that's it and you go stand before God, what will you say? If he says, Dennis Harms, why should I let you in here? And in tears, Dennis said, I'll say, you shouldn't let me in there. But Jesus died taking the punishment my sins deserve. Amen. Amen. You can learn the answer to that question. You can learn Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, John 3.16. Just one of them. You can tell somebody, you know what, you need to come to church. Like, I, I don't know if I can, I don't have all the answers for you, but I know my life feels better when I go and sit at our church and hear the word explain and try to live according to what I hear there. Two weeks ago, I challenged you to pray for harvest workers. I want you to keep praying that. That should be a part of our regular prayer life. God, there are people in my family, there are people in my community, and there are people in this world who will go to hell if they die today. Will you raise up harvest workers for the harvest? The other side of that is consider the fact that maybe you are part of the answer to that prayer that you know someone who doesn't know Jesus and needs to. If they are hostile, Jesus said, you don't have to keep beating your head against that hostile. But we don't get to pick and choose. Won't you pray with me when we'll close? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for sending Jesus to die under the, under the weight of our sins. I thank you that the gospel is incredible, but it's simple. We deserve to die. You died in our place. Thank you for the truth of that and the power in that. And God, we do pray that you would, you would raise up harvest workers to go into the harvest field here in our little area of southwest Nebraska and around the world with a new message that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. God, I know I have a lot of very nervous people here that feel like I'm asking them to do something they're not qualified for, they're inadequate to the task, and that's absolutely true. None of us are qualified, none of us are adequate, but you are. I just pray you would make us a bunch of nobodies trying to tell everybody about somebody who can save anybody. You saved us. And I pray you would do that more and more to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.